lesson from the book of Genesis. In those days Joseph said to his brothers, Hear this dream which I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him yet more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Sechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Sechem? Go, come, I will, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word again. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Sechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, pray, I pray you, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him afar off, and before he came near to them, he conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand upon him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Continuation of the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. At that time Jesus spoke this parable to the multitude of the Jews and the chief priests. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruit. Then the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. And here's a verse that isn't in the thing, isn't in the, the Latin reading, but is in some issues of 
some versions of scripture, and he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them, but when, he, when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Saving words of the gospel. Well, today we continue our spiritual journey in in Rome, in spirit, if not uh, in physically, if we can't be there, going to the Roman stations. Um, every day, of course, a station church is assigned, uh, all during Lent. And so today we would go down to the, the Subura area, in our rough and ready area of Rome, at the foot of the Escaline Hill, and gather at St. Agatha, which happens to be Cardinal Burke's titular church, and we wend our way over to San Vitale and uh, go down the steps. It's, it's many, many feet down below the present surface of Rome. And there is the, the station mass. And it's like going down into a pit to get down there, which recalls to mind how the brothers threw Joseph down into a pit. And I think it's one of the reasons why the station is there. Now, these readings today are fairly long, uh, which, <laughs> during, during Lent, the readings seem to be very long, which always strikes me when I hear, when I hear people say, oh, in the old mess, there isn't enough scripture. Oh, well, there certainly is enough scripture in Lent. So they give us, uh, you know, profound uh, readings and quite a bit of them, too. So we have this uh, lesson from Genesis. Of course, we have... Uh, Joseph who's thrown into the pit. Then you know what happens. Slave, you know, people coming from Egypt going by, they sell them into, sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt, becomes a very important person. And later when there's a famine, the 11 brothers and even the father have to then come and beg the figure. They don't know he's Joseph yet. They have to beg him for, for grain so they don't starve to death. So indeed his dreams do come come true. And just as this Joseph has to then come back out of Israel, back to the promised land, and eventually he's carried back, his bones are carried back in the Exodus. Uh, the Lord himself uh, uh, demonstrates that he fulfills, he fulfills the prophecy in the life of Joseph in his own person, and is the new, uh, the new Joseph, just as he's the new Moses, just as he's the new Adam, and so, and so forth and so on. And so we have the... Um, the, the Lord uh, then quoting uh, from scriptures, uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Well, that's what happens with Joseph, and that's what happens with him with himself, too. But there's the, this line, this interesting line that some versions of scripture have and some don't. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, this certainly has to do with the, with justice having been dealt with, having been applied to the unjust, just like what happens in the parable that we have today, um, the uh, justice did fall on them for what you know they had done. Of course, the parable has uh, various significations, but you know the most, the clearest is that the Lord has sent to His people again and again and again various servants. And they have killed them, or treated them badly, just as they have treated the prophets through the years. 
and now of course the greatest of all has come and they're going to treat him very badly and then what it is that they have had will be taken away and given to others which uh, foreshadows the fact that the that uh, this the kingdom of God uh, will be opening up to the Gentiles as well which of course is part of the the very um, the very mission of the Lord um, at least after his resurrection his mission at first is to the people and then later to the Gentiles we have that we have that scene with the Syrophoenician woman um, who remember that whole exchange about her being like a dog remember you know they're outside they're outside of the area of the Jews and he's in the area of the Gentiles and the Lord has said no I have not come for you my mission is not to you this is this is what he's you know he's saying that right now my mission is to bring the people in so he goes up to the area um, where the the various ten tribes have been scattered because of the Assyrians and uh, his mission eventually will be to gather them together to and bring all together in himself so we have this so we have this this uh, this uh, parable and you know remember in every parable there's a twist well the twist in this one if you were looking for it is the fact that after all these servants had been been killed the the landowner thought that they would treat his son any differently but uh, of course they 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 did not now um, well there we have so we can go into uh, Isaiah 5 if we want to I, I will refer you to that for your later reading today uh, Isaiah 5 which is the song of the vineyard and that connects these two readings uh, very well but I'll leave that for your own study now there is there is something else that I want to bring up here and um, I was reading in, in Alfonso Schuster's The Sacramentary which I've been using uh, in the podcast that I've been doing for Lent and uh, I've been using it for my own edification every day there are some beautiful beautiful books that I have recourse to year in and year out year in and year out just like the Tamid year year in and year out and some of those are divine intimacy and uh, um, uh, the books of Pius Parsh about the church's liturgical year and uh, the book the meditations for each day by Cardinal Bacci and uh, this book also for the because this blessed Ilfonso who had been Archbishop of Milan and was a deep uh, liturgical expert and a Benedictine abbot he, uh, he goes deeply into um, into the liturgical year um, writing each day about Lent and about all the various uh, elements of the Mass and to try to give us a, a thematic exposition sometimes they're a little forced um, just as pious parishes are a little bit forced but but uh, they always uh, bring with them a terrific insights um, the fruit of real prayer well at the end at, at, every time Schuster writes about one of the days of Lent and breaking down the different prayers and what they come from the time out of which they arose and so forth at the end he gives a little fervorino and today struck me today and I'm going to read it for you and I might just stop and make a comment along the way it's very it's very profound the church as though she feared that the very splendor of her liturgy might lead simple folk 
Into thinking that Christianity consisted merely in holding functions and receiving the sacraments, insists continually in her Lenten formulas that we should, by our good works, give reality to what is so sublimely expressed in the liturgy. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. The churches, though she feared that the very splendor of her liturgy by simple folk into leading Christianity consisted merely in holding functions and receiving sacraments. The splendor of the liturgy itself can be something that distracts us away from the internal core of what it is that Christ, who is the true actor in liturgy, in, in any liturgical function, whether it's Mass or the Office or any other liturgical function, wants to give us. We have splendid outward signs that are to convey to us transforming realities. Some of them are sacraments. Others are more like sacramentals. But all of them convey something of, the, of an encounter, offer us an encounter with mystery, just like the, the encounter of Moses with the Shekinah, the going into the cloud of presence in the tent of meeting, when Moses would come out, his face would shine with the reflected the reflected uh, glory of God. This is how we are to have an encounter with, with, with mystery in the liturgical action. However, sometimes it can happen, and I've seen this very much among uh, people of a traditional bent, that they will get so fascinated with the particulars or the details of this or that or the other thing that they forget that they that those things are really just the they're the messengers that can, that are intended to convey the message and they get fascinated by the messenger rather than the message itself for example oh isn't it fascinating that they move the book from one side to the other oh look look what the priest is doing in the patent he's making the sign of the cross of the patent and then he kisses it I wonder why he does that and so no these are you no know, these are good things in themselves the externals, the little items that we have, are, are very good in themselves, and they're not to be in any way uh, uh, thought to be uh, unnecessary or, or bad or distracting. This was a, a terrible error that I think was made at the time of the council. They started thinking that, oh, well, these are just little additions that, that latch themselves on like barnacles in the bottom of a boat, and they have to be scraped off. No, because they all... They do convey something, and they and if they do capture the attention of some, well, that's good. You think about this on a, just a basic human level. There are a lot of, well, <laughs> very many beautiful uh, relationships that wind up in marriage start with, shall we say, a less than, maybe a less than holy attraction. Maybe it's a purely physical attraction. You see a you know a beautiful girl and. You're very interested in you really want to get to know her and you know young men are um, you know there, there are certain there are certain ways of wanting to get to know girls anyway um, it could be it could start out with a with a with a very kind of a base thing you're attracted to beauty but then over time something more develops and a great uh, a true love of charity uh, develops so that what began with maybe a little less than perfect motive turns into a more far more perfect motive of charity of a desire uh, of sacrificial love to give literally your life for the sake of the other and this is this is how uh, we are as human beings we're, we're not angels we, we we see things through our senses and we and and um, they have to they have to mature 
Well, this is what it is also with the beautiful aspects of Holy Mass, especially in the Vetus Ordo, which has so many rich things in it. And so, lest people fall into an intellectual distraction, or on the other hand, what Alfonso is talking about here is maybe even superstition, that the things in themselves, ooh, they just, you know, kind of magically do things as if Mass is theurgy in some way. Well, we have to avoid those things. And also, it's it's the, in this in that sentence that dense sentence is also a beautiful way of talking about uh, the what later on the council fathers enshrined in, in Sacrosanctum Lucilium the idea of full conscious and active participation which was a concept that had been talked about all through the 20th century about liturgical issues it wasn't something that was new at the Second Vatican Council as if it left full blown out of the head of Zeus no. This is something that the church has been talking about all along. Now, uh, let's go on. Without this personal and intimate realization, and that is that the that the beautiful formulas and things that uh, in Lent that are given to us liturgically are meant to produce action in us, outward action, especially in good works. Without this personal and intimate realization brought about by constant effort, the liturgy would become a kind of magic formula. That's what I was just saying. This fact clearly explains the words of the gospel that many who, during this life, hold a high place among the followers of Christ, who even prophesy and work wonders in his name, will, after death, be rejected and condemned by her Lord himself. Nesio vos, I know you not. Depart from me, all ye that work iniquity. It is not ritual forms, nor a sterile faith, but the good deeds inspired by a living faith that will gain for us everlasting salvation. I'm reminded of the of the Lord teaching us. Not all those who will, who say Lord, Lord, will enter into the into the kingdom of God. Now, what we what we what we gain through our liturgical participation has to eventually transform us inwardly, so that it will find outward expression in not just in pious words, but in in action. And that is involving especially the corporal and spiritual uh, works of mercy. And on that note, um, there's, uh, I commend one of you uh, today uh, who's watching for having requested a, a Mass. This Mass be said for the attention of someone, uh, a friend who is ill. And um, we, we don't just go to visit those who are ill. We also um, do things like this. Uh, we get others to pray, and um, we also turn to the greatest resource that Holy Church has, and that's Holy Mass, bringing all of our petitions. Now, we can't always have a Mass set for someone, but you know what you can do? At every single Mass that you ever participate in is you can take all of your cares and all of your petitions because you're a baptized person, and therefore you share in the priesthood of Christ, you, in your baptized priestly function, can take all of those things and unite them at the time of the offery, offertory 
to the gifts that the priest is raising up to God for transformation and transubstantiation. You can take your cares and with those little drops of water, like our human element, that are put into the wine and the chalice, the divine element, you can take your cares and your petitions and like those little drops of water, and I use that little scruple spoon, so it's little, little drops of water, literally. You can take your petitions and connect them to those drops of water and add them into that chalice so that when they're raised up, they can be transformed. Dominus obiscum, oremus. Domini exilium meum respice, confundantur et reveriantur quiquer in anima meam, ut alfer deam. Domini exilium meum respice. Orate fratres. Secula seculorum. Dominus obiscum, sursum corda. Grazas agamus domino leo nostro. Benedictum in justum est ecum et salutare. Tos tibi semper vivique, grazas ad